0: A story is told of a little girl in her children's church class, and the teacher asks a question. says, okay, class, what has a big bushy tail? What has gray fur? What climbs from tree to tree and eats nuts? Nobody answered the question right away. To the little girl raised her hand and she said it sounds like you're describing a squirrel but i'm pretty sure the answer is jesus <laughs> <clears throat> i heard that this week and i thought like i thought of even my kids at times whenever we ask them like what's the answer to the question or uh and there's certain things that just kids know the, you know, the Bible, Jesus, God, um, and uh, I, I do a weekly, or a, it, it's, it happens monthly, I do a coaching call with a, a pastor, if you were here in October, he preached here, his name's Newt Larson, and uh, he wants to know like, how we're doing, and he asks what I'm preaching on and things, and he shared that with me, and he said uh, years ago, he shared that with his church, because the the truth behind that silly little joke or story, whether it happened for real or not, is that she was right. The answer is always Jesus. Uh, And last week, it was Easter Sunday. And we have this propensity, I think, to just sort of go back to business as usual. In church world, you cycle around two holidays. What are they? Yeah, Christmas and Easter. And so you do a lot of build-up and intentional planning for Easter. You do the same thing for Christmas. And those things aren't wrong, but the propensity is to kind of take a deep sigh when you, when you get over that big hurdle of the planning and you're like celebrating everything went well. You're evaluating what you maybe want to do different next year. You know, just for instance, yesterday at our leadership team meeting, we already started a discussion on Christmas ideas. It's not even May yet. But the propensity is once that clears and it's off the calendar, then you just go back to business as usual for a while. And the thing that blows my mind about my personal propensity to just see Easter as a day on the calendar is that it is the literal turning point of human history. It is the cataclysmic turning point of human history. No other moment has defined human history better since creation, than Resurrection Sunday. How is it possible to just treat it like any other day? How is it possible to, to live in the reality of a risen Savior and then Monday act like it's just another Monday? So I, I wanted to put ourselves in the seats of the people that were there, that lived it, that that watched their friend, their their rabbi, their son, their brother, die on a cross. Only to see the fact that he rose from the grave himself under his own power three short days later. Maybe you're like me. Maybe you've been part of the church for so long that We've memorized it. We've talked about it. We've highlighted it. It doesn't feel awesome anymore. It doesn't feel miraculous anymore. It doesn't feel life-altering anymore. I take myself back to the moment on a dorm room floor at Eastern Kentucky University, bawling my eyes out, And saying to the Lord, I will go anywhere. I will do anything. I know this is what you're calling me to. And I don't know if I was a believer up to that moment. But what I do know is from that moment on, I was. That Adam would have gone anywhere. He would have done anything. He would have said anything for the name of Jesus. Anything that Adam would have. So I don't know what your story is. I don't know what your dorm room floor was. But at that moment, the moment where you wake up to the reality of the resurrection, what did that do to your life? And what caused you and I to not stay in that moment? What made the the resurrection not feel surreal? What makes the resurrection not feel miraculous? What makes it feel like just another thing that we have to believe to get to heaven? What makes it the thing that we talk about on Easter and then we just go through our different series and things? I don't mean that critically. I just, I'm I'm asking these questions to myself. So, Adam Johnson, how do you live now that Jesus literally has just changed everything? And I think what I found helpful to me was I, I wanted to sit. And reorient myself around how, how did Jesus Himself? He did it. He accomplished what no one could have ever accomplished. He rose Himself from the grave after He conquered sin and death once and for all. No weapon formed against me can ever accomplish what it wants to accomplish. No enemy can accomplish. What he wants to accomplish because Christ has won a victory for me on the cross. So what did Jesus do and what were his decisions and what were his behavioral patterns after after he came back to life? Not so much what did the people do, or what did they react, because they were sinners just like us. They would have lost sight of it, they were downtrodden, they, they were doubting, they had no. they were completely lost and, and they could not fathom this reality. I don't see one place in the whole New Testament where anyone actually believed that Jesus was going to come back to life. Think about that. This whole book told us it was going to happen repeatedly jesus told the people that he was with repeatedly exactly in explicit detail what was going to happen to him and i can't find one record of anyone that completely expected that tomb to be empty on sunday i can't find record of one person in all of scripture that actually believed that jesus was going to come back from the grave not one disciple sat down with the others Guys, 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 chill out. That was horrendous. I never want to have to see that again. But the story's not over. Just wait. Just wait till Sunday. You'll see. Did you, did you pay attention to him? That's what he said. Not one. So I think looking at their example would be foolish if we don't look at Jesus's first. Make sense? Okay. Luke 24. I'm asking you to turn there. We're going to be there the whole time. We're going to look at one other verse in 1 Thessalonians if you want to put your thumb there, but that'll be later on. We're going to spend time in Luke 24. Now, Luke 24 from verses 13 to 35 is actually where the name Journey Church comes from. It's where the vision, mission, and values of our church comes from. If you've been a part of Journey any amount of time, it is no secret that I absolutely love this passage it is no secret. And you've probably heard me say this, but Jesus in this moment on the road to Emmaus teaches a master class in what he means when he says, make disciples. He teaches a master's level class, a doctorate level class on what he means when he says, go and make disciples. So Jesus What did he do with his time post a humanity-altering resurrection? What did he do? He just did what never, ever had ever been done and will never be done again. And he altered the scope of human history. How would you celebrate that win? How would I celebrate that win? Well, let's look at verses 13 through 35 together, and I think we're going to get a clear answer of what Jesus saw as the most important way to spend His time right after He came back from the dead. Starting verse 13, That very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem, and they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus Himself drew near and went with them, but their eyes were kept from recognizing Him. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So they drew near to the village to which they were going. He acted as if he were going farther, but they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at table with them, he took the bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened. And they recognized him, and he vanished from their sight. They said to each other, Did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened the scriptures to us? And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem. And they found the eleven and those who were with them gathered together, saying, The Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. Then they told what had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. Jesus just conquered sin and death for all people for all time. If that was you, you had just been spit on, mocked, the whole crowd turned on you, a Roman authority thought he had authority over you. What would you and I do? Who would be the first person we'd rub it into that they were wrong? How many I told you so moments would we have if it was us? Maybe you and I would find a way to rub it into all the ones who put us to death and mocked us. But that's not what Jesus does, Jesus goes for a walk. Jesus just rose himself from the grave. I can't emphasize that enough. Conquering sin and death for all time, past, present, and future. And his response to that is that he goes for a stroll to a nowhere town seven miles away that he has no reason to go to. He makes these two people the focal point of his undivided attention Minutes after coming back from the grave. Now, if you've been here and you've heard me preach on this passage before, I make no apology that we preach on this passage several times a year. Uh, But there are a couple things that he does here that I think are important for us to glimpse at. And look, I'm not going to belabor the point, but I want us to see how he did it. First of all, he walks with them at their pace where they're going. He doesn't stop them and say, well, hey, why don't you come where I'm at, come to me, come over here, clean yourself up a bit, and then I'll tell you some good news. He doesn't say, hey, come over here, and I'm going to take you to a person who I've claimed is an expert on all things related to God, and I'm going to have him or her tell you about this good news. No, he walks with them where they're going, at their pace. He has no reason to go to Emmaus, none. Seven miles. He went for a seven-mile walk for no reason other than the fact that these two people were walking to Emmaus, and he knew they doubted. The other thing he does is he asks questions, and pay attention, this is the most important part. He, not the most important part, but it's one of the most important parts. <laughs> he asks questions, and then he stops talking and listens to their response, even though they're dead wrong. They are dead wrong. They are doubting the one they're speaking to. They are doubting the existence of the one they're walking with. Now, they don't know that yet, but he does. So he doesn't smack them upside the head and say, how many times do I have to say it? He tenderly listens, no interruptions. He lets them go whenever they're done talking. He says things to them like, your hearts are slow at receiving what your head says you believe. So let's go through this one more time. And starting with Moses and all the prophets, he taught them all the things in the word concerning himself. Jesus, riddled through Scripture from Genesis to Revelation. The book is about him. And then he ate a meal with them. He went into their home and had a meal with them. This is Jesus' behavioral patterns right after cataclysmically altering human history. But you should also pay attention to what Jesus says, not just what He does, but what He says. Because what He says to them is, didn't the Scriptures tell exactly what would happen would happen? Now, he doesn't say that with sarcasm. He doesn't say that to belittle or demean them. But he's he's repeating something that he has said numerous times. Quick aside, something that I saw this week was brought to my attention. Uh, Do you know that one of the Marys that is mentioned at the tomb is Mary, the wife of Cleopas? So there are a lot of scholars that believe that he's walking with a husband and wife on the road to Emmaus. And I don't know about you, but that kind of blew my mind. He looks at them and he says, don't the scriptures tell exactly what would happen? So let's look at it again from Moses and all the prophets. Let's look at all the things concerning himself. Now, real quick aside, look at their response after that. They wake up to the reality of a risen Savior. He did his part. He did what Jesus does best. He tenderly walked with him, all the things we just looked at. And then their response, did you catch it? Because it's phenomenal and it's not forced. The first thing they say is did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures. Now, make a connection here. Because earlier, what Jesus said was, "O foolish ones and slow of, someone whispered it. Say it louder, heart. O foolish ones and slow of heart to not believe all, to believe all the prophets had spoken. Did not these things have to happen? Slow of heart. Later on, when they understand that they had just." broke bread with a risen Jesus, it says, did our hearts not burn within us? Now, I fully believe that what that means is what they believed in their head and heard intellectual truth finally made its way to connecting to their heart and it became reality to them. And when it became reality to them that they serve a risen Savior and He's in the world today and I know that He is with us, no matter what men say, what did they do? They illogically, completely illogically got up from the table, ran down the road seven miles to where they just couldn't wait to get out of. Completely different posture to walk back into the lives of the people that they just walked away from to proclaim one thing. Jesus is alive and we just saw him. Their desired destination changed. Their posture changed. It wasn't because they met someone who knew Jesus. It was because they met Jesus. And then Jesus looks at them and he says, Didn't, I remember, he says, remember the scriptures. Didn't the scriptures say this already? Now I find it fascinating. Look forward now at verses 36 through 49. Follow along with me as we look at this. As they were talking about these things, these believers, the ones that just spent time with Jesus off of the road to Emmaus, they bust through the doors, that's the way I picture it at least, (laughs) out of breath, Jesus is alive, can you believe it? Right, we just saw him, he appeared to Simon. Verse 36, as they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, peace to you. What a great entrance, calm down, it's okay. Have you anything here to eat? I think I want to get that verse tattooed on me somewhere. It's my life verse. Jesus said it's in red letters. Have you anything to eat? Just quoting Jesus. They gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate before them. Then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. And then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. And behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you, But stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. So does Jesus repeat himself? Yeah, several times. Why? Because we're children. We are kids. If you're in this room and you have children, I just want you to raise your hand if you had to repeat yourself this morning. Yeah. My favorite one is, Brush your teeth <laughs> while my son stands and makes faces in the mirror for 10 minutes <laughs> with his toothbrush in his hand. <laughs> you see, that's us. That's, that's us. That's why Jesus repeats Himself, because we're all children. His children. And like a good father... He tenderly repeats himself to emphasize something that we really do need to understand. He doesn't yell at them. He doesn't poke fun at them. He repeats himself because it's something that they need to understand. And what he says to them is, you can and should trust the Word. You can and you should trust my Father's Word. And remember earlier whenever he told them, whenever it tells us in Scripture, that the Word in John 1 became flesh and dwelt amongst them. And what Jesus is blowing their minds with in this moment, because he opens their minds, like that's a literal mind-blowing moment. Jesus opens their minds for so the first time in their lives completely understand what he's saying. And in that moment, he says to them, the word said this would happen exactly how it would happen. And one of the guys that's there listening to all that is the guy that penned, the word became flesh and dwelt amongst us. He got it, he understood. So Jesus, in the moments after this miraculous resurrection, takes a walk takes a walk. He meets with followers, and instead of making it known to stadiums full of people, he gives the good news to us. That's a real head-scratcher. Jesus in that moment could have stood on a mountaintop and gathered the masses, and in a miraculous way made the whole globe hear him. At one time. And he could have said, I did it. It's done. Here's the message. Everyone follow me and draw all the attention to himself. But that's not what he did. He very humbly met with a bunch of doubters, sinners that had failed him repeatedly. And that message that he could have proclaimed to millions and millions of people in one shot, what did he do with it? He entrusted it to us. That's crazy town. He says, you can tell them. You ever have a moment like that where you let somebody else give the big announcement? Now you can tell them. Go ahead. There's something about handing an announcement, a really cool announcement off to someone. I've done this with my kids before. No, you can tell them. And they get to make the grand announcement, whatever that is. We're going to Hershey Park, you know, whatever. There's something about handing that to them and entrusting them with the good news and then them getting the joy of delivering the good news. And that's how I picture Jesus in this moment. The kind, loving father taking this miraculous good news message and handing it to his kids and says, you can tell them. This is the best news ever. You can tell them. That's the kindness of God. It's not dictatorial where he makes the decision in the edict and then we all just must follow the heart of God pumping through his son. His kindness shows up when he says, here's the good news. And he opens their minds to comprehend it. And he says, now you can tell them. I told you several times and now you get it. Now you can go tell them. And you, this is going to go places Guys, this is going to go places. You're going to go places. This message isn't to be contained here. It's going to begin here. You're my witnesses, and I'm sending the promise of my Father upon you. Stay here until you're empowered. And he kind of says, I know you don't completely understand what that means yet, but you will when it happens. And if you're here today, and you have met Jesus, and your heart has burned with the truth and reality of head knowledge becoming heart knowledge, and you've been indwelled with the Spirit of the living God, and you get to live in the good news, hope of that, do you know what that means? They believed Him. And they did it. Because if they would have never left Jerusalem, you wouldn't know the gospel. They believed Him and they left their homes, and they left their cities, and they left their families, and they gave their lives for this because it was that good of news. It was worth giving up everything for to make sure you and I got it. That's how Jesus spent his time. Post-resurrection. Now, when I get to the takeaways part of my message, I could give you... 37 takeaways today from this but I'm I'm taking it down to 3. And these are the ones that stood out to me most. The first one. We have been entrusted with the good news. We've we've looked at this verse before. I want to look at it again. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. If you want to turn there, it's a good one for you to mark and if you're if you're looking for some scripture that you can memorize and lock into your heart, this is one that I think would be really good for us all to memorize together. First Thessalonians 2. It'd help if I went to the right book of the Bible myself. 1 Thessalonians 2, verses 3 and 4. Listen to what Paul says here to the church in Thessalonica. He says, For our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive. He's, He's saying, We're not here to draw attention to ourselves. But just, listen to this, but just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak not to please man but to please God who tests our hearts. I could spend another two hours, I'm not going to, just breaking down what Paul's saying here, but I'm going to do it real quick, best I can. He starts off by reminding them that we have our approval, not from some sending agency, not from some board of directors, not from a degree hang on our walls. We don't have our approval from the people that like us most. We don't have our approval from the amount of followers we have. We are approval that comes straight from the king. We have been approved by God. If you are sitting here today and you have been, you have been indwelled with the spirit of living God, you have been approved by him. You do not need to seek that from any other source. But why did he approve us? Well, the purpose is the next line. He approved us to entrust us. With what, though? That same good news that Jesus sat with those followers in that room and told them, I am alive, the scriptures are all about me, and you know it now. Go and you give that good news. So we've been approved by God to hold this and entrusted with this gospel. And out of that, we speak not to please people. Because some of the truth of the gospel, the good news, isn't always good news to someone who's entrenched in their sin and doesn't want to change. So we speak out of our approval coming from God and out of what we've been entrusted with, we speak not to please the people, but to please God. Do you know why? Because the people don't see my heart. God sees it. And when I stand before Him one day, that's what I'm going to be concerned about, what He sees in my heart, not what you saw in my life. And if I live my life, consumed with what God sees when He tests my heart, it will alter what you see in my life. I will have no problem being completely honest with you because Christ already died to take care of my sin. You can't take anything from me. You can't give me anything that I need more than what Jesus already gave me, and you can't take anything from me near as big as what Jesus took from me when He died for my sins. So I don't need to give you the kind of weight to get my approval from you. And you don't have to do that with the people around you either. You don't have to seek their likes. You don't have to seek their approval. And our culture is completely foundationally built right now on getting people to follow you and like you. And this verse tells us that when we are approved by God and entrusted with the gospel, it is the antithesis of being approved and liked by people. Our lives should be so wrapped up in Jesus that that's all they see. And when the hearts are burning for Jesus, it won't matter what you look like, what you sound like, what kind of clothes you wear, how nice your house is. You know what will matter? That your heart burns for Jesus and you were able to give that to them. It's the first takeaway. We've been entrusted with this good news. Of all the hodgepodge, ragamuffin group of people that God could entrust the gospel with, He gave it to us. What in the world? You've been entrusted. I've been entrusted with the good news. That's the first one. The second one. It's a phrase that, that, that has been used for a couple years now, but uh, I saw it first in one of my favorite movies, The Patriot, and it's this. Aim small, miss small. It's a shooting term. If your target is a clay this big at 100 yards, and all you see in the scope is everything out here, you'll miss. You'll miss every time. But if you aim dead center, aim small, miss small. Here's why I say that. Jesus entrusted you, just like we looked at. He entrusted you with something major, and then we can follow his behavioral patterns. What did he do with what he was entrusted with? He went for a walk with two people. He focused on 12 disciples, and one of them betrayed him. So the outcome of someone else's decisions didn't change Jesus' willingness to invest in them. Even if there were warning signs that someone was going to betray Him, even when Jesus looked at Peter and said, you are going to betray me three times, Peter says, no way, that's not true. And Jesus says, you know what you sound like right now? Satan. What I said was true. I don't like it, Peter, but you're going to do it. And then he did. And then he entrusts Peter with what? The founding of the church in Acts chapter 2. Aim small, miss small. Listen, following Jesus is not about taking people to who you believe are experts. Loving people with the gospel, being trust with the gospel, means a whole lot more than inviting someone to come to church with you. That's just a small part of it. You're entrusted with something. Aim small, miss small. I think the most deflating things that I made decisions for when I was a teenager are things like, I'm going to lead my whole class to Jesus. Instead of saying, my friend Nick, he just doesn't get it. I'm going to pour myself out into him. I didn't aim small, miss small. I aimed big because my heart wanted big. See, I aimed big because I wanted credit for big. That's not what Jesus does, and he could have. He could have justified it. That's not what he did, and that's not how he modeled it, and that's not what he told us to do. So you've been entrusted with the gospel. You've been entrusted with the good news. So the other takeaway, be like Jesus, aim small, miss small. And the third thing is where I'm going to ask you to do something. It is a response today. There should be a notes paper clipped on the seat in front of you. And if it's not, it should be on the seat that you're on. If it's not, reach around and find one somewhere in this room because I'm going to ask a question here. Is the third takeaway. Who's your two? Who's your two? Who are the two people that don't know Jesus that you are willing to walk at their pace where they're going, spend time with them, talking to them, listening to them, hearing their doubts, hearing their frustrations, and at every chance you get, speaking the word of truth into their lives. Because when their hearts burn with the gospel, you know what will happen? Their desired destination will change. Their goals will change, and they'll start to make some of the same illogical decisions towards the humanity as you have made. Who's your two? Who are the two people that you are going to commit? I am going to spend time investing in them to see the beauty of the gospel. Not inviting them to church. If that's part of it, great. Not inviting them to Bible study. If that's part of it, that's great. Some of the people you're going to write down, they're not ready for that. They're not ready to come here. They're not ready to come to Bible study. They're not ready to come to your community group. You know what they're ready for? They're ready to have someone walk with them at their pace, where they're going, even if you don't like it. If you don't like the sights and the smells and the feel of where they're going, doesn't matter. doesn't matter. Jesus had no reason to go to Emmaus. No reason. Who's your two? Get a piece of paper. Write those names down. Put in your Bible, in your wallet. Type them in your phone. Put them somewhere where you're going to look at them every day. And here's the other caveat. If you're sitting here today and you don't know two people that don't know Jesus, you need to get out more. because we are surrounded. Montgomery County has almost 911,000 people living in it. Look around. They're not here. Drive past any gospel preaching church in this county. They're not there either. See, we've been entrusted with the gospel to take it to them, not to ask them to come to us. The church's job is six days a week, not one day a week. To be the church is to be out there, active, living it out, walking with people, listening to them, hearing from them. And guess what? They'll make you uncomfortable. They'll say things you don't have answers to. I'm going to ask the band to come up. As we get ready to close our time together, I'd like you to seriously consider. Take a piece of notepaper with you, or if you have a journal with you, something. Think of that. Who's your two? I'm going to start using that language more often to remind us all of it. I'd be glad to tell you about my two. Just ask. The last song we're going to sing is one that says, O Church, Arise. Put your armor on. Oh, church, arise. So, would you stand, please, church? The battle isn't waged in here necessarily, the battle is waged out there. This should feel like a little bit of a safe harbor. This should feel like a place where you could come in and be with like-minded people and understood. That's why we do things like community groups, and, and that's why we do Bible studies, so we can be with people that already know Jesus to be equipped with it better, to go out in the other places where God has put us to serve and to connect and to love people. Jesus aimed small. So did The disciples. Peter didn't start preaching so that he could see 5,000 people come to know the Lord. He just was faithful with what was in front of him. The people that were skeptical saying he was drunk. And he was saying, I'm not drunk. I'm filled with something much better than alcohol. Let me tell you about it. So he speaks that truth. And out of that, unbeknownst to him in the moment, 5,000 people come to know Jesus. Out of that, God added to their number daily those who were being saved. Eventually, that made its way to Montgomery County, Pennsylvania. I know the church is in Bucks County. I live in Montgomery County. That's why I keep saying that. I'm an anti Bucks County. So, who's your two? You've been entrusted with something. Jesus aimed small, Jesus never missed. And who's your two? Will you arise together and will we do the work of being the church? Will we live out of the resurrection, not as though it's a a, a, a holiday to be celebrated once a year, but an event that altered the course of our lives? Let's pray. Father God, you are great and awesome and holy and we are not any of those things what we are is known by you, loved by you, entrusted and approved by you with this amazing gospel truth. So when the world around us says, Sir, we wish to see Jesus, may we be able to take them right to you. Every chance we get, may this church arise, put our armor on, and go do the work of the church. In your name, amen.